Welcome, this is Dawn Tree, and you're listening to Atypical Parenting, the podcast for people who love someone with autism. I have another great guest today. I feel like all my guests, I say that, a great guest, but these people I'm meeting on the podcast are amazing humans. I haven't met a person that I've interviewed yet who really isn't an amazing human. So again, another amazing human, Shay Belsky. Welcome, Shay. I'm so glad you're here. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Certainly. So my name is Shay Belsky. My day job is Chief Technology Officer of Mentra. Mentra is a neurodiversity hiring platform for job seekers who are neurodivergent, anybody with autism, ADHD, dyslexia. Um, I am also autistic myself. I work on a team of largely neurodivergent individuals as well. And I live in the Boston area. I graduated from Cornell University in 2018. I've also worked at companies like Wayfair, HubSpot, Google, and IBM in the past. I live with my fiance and my two cats. My cats might come in and say hi because I open the windows and I love to open windows. What is it about cats? I feel like so many people with autism are drawn to cats rather than dogs. <laughs> I think part of it is because cats are really emotional. So like they kind of sense like, do you need like a hug? Do you need some physical affection? And the two cats that we have are very affectionate, very physical. And sometimes I just kind of want that. I don't necessarily want to talk to somebody. I just kind of want to like exist. And cats are very good at that. Yeah. Cats are really good at existing and not demanding much from you. Obviously, like I, I feed them. I change the litter box. I, I play with them. I have cat dad socks to prove it. <laughs> That's awesome. So you're involved in this kind of groundbreaking program, I think. It's a very interesting kind of platform, what Mentra is. A big problem that we're trying to solve basically is that one in every seven people around the world is neurodivergent. That's a lot of people. But of that one in seven, about 80% of them are either unemployed or underemployed. I know. That's such a statistic. Imagine somebody who's extremely brilliant and talented, but because they can't sit through a normal job interview, they are stuck bagging groceries or working a phone. They're not applying their skill set and their interests largely because employers and companies don't really know how to best support their needs. They just kind of apply the same formula for every other employee. This applies more generally to anyone with disability. But from my experience, neurodiversity is just a really bad problem because neurodiversity is often, not always, but often an invisible disability. So employers don't necessarily know what to look for. They don't know what to watch out for in the act of supporting their employees, advocating for them, or training their managers, training their bosses to help their direct reports. Your company that you work for, Mentra, what would inspire an employer to sign up to work with you guys? A big part of what we do is not only the employment aspect of it, but also sort of embedding or connecting with the company to help them become more neuroinclusive whether that's speaking with the leadership, speaking with their HR, speaking with people who are sort of on the ground. The idea is to empower employers, empower companies to be neuroinclusive in their own way, now and into the future. Because it doesn't really matter if they're neuroinclusive for the duration of our, their engagement with us for however long they pay for the service. They want to be neuroinclusive now and forever into the future. That way, two years from now, if someone who has ADHD comes to work for that company, they know how to support this person through the interview process, through onboarding for the first 90 days and into the future. Because the needs of someone with ADHD are different from somebody with autism, from dyslexia, from epilepsy, and so on. Right. So the idea is to create a, a lasting impact and sort of provide them with a structure, not necessarily a formula, but more of like a blueprint for 
how to become more inclusive and then sort of put that into practice, put it into action. It's kind of a groundbreaking way to think about this problem of unemployment in the autistic population. A lot of people already do what we're doing on a very small scale. So there's vocational rehab services, there are job coaches, there are career centers. There's so many support organizations that are out there that work for the sole purpose of helping people with autism get jobs, whether that's developing their hard skills, the things that they know very concretely from school or work or whatever, or developing their soft skills, how you go for an interview, how you handle difficult situations, how you handle being on a team, and then more executive functioning, keeping a calendar, making sure you can live on your own independently, and just being a person. These are all very distinct, very difficult challenges. So Mentra really tries to bridge the gap where folks are really good at this stuff. They just need support. And so then we ask employers, what can you do? What can you do to help these people be better at the soft skills, at the executive functioning, at the hard skills? Especially because a lot of autistic folks might not know how to be their own best advocate. So Mentra provides sort of a Mentra profile. Think of it like a LinkedIn profile. We provide a profile which makes it very easy for a job seeker to advocate for themselves, to say, this is me, here's the just standard stuff, the work experience, job history, skill set. And then here are some accommodations or success enablers I might need in the workplace. Here are some environments where I can and cannot succeed in. Here's more information about my being neurodiverse if I want to. You will never have to Say on your profile that neurodivergent, but people choose to, but never are obligated to uh, say explicitly that you're neurodivergent on your profile. It's amazing. I feel like I've had this aha moment when you're speaking because you're right. There's all these programs where individuals are helped one-on-one, but there's no kind of coming at it from the other direction where you're helping organizations change the way they accommodate people with neurodivergent disabilities. We're trying to scale it, basically. Yeah. We're trying to take what's already been proven to work on smaller scales, like a very one-to-one thing, and make it happen to the scale of thousands of job seekers. We have about 15,000 job seekers, job seekers on the platform right now, and that number only goes up every day. That's amazing. That's, I mean, the idea behind this is just, I think, brilliant. Thank you. You've worked in other companies, though. I have. Tell me about that. It's been interesting working at larger companies versus a startup. They're very different. In reverse order, I was at HubSpot, then Wayfair, then Google, then IBM. So HubSpot was where I was before I was at Mentra. And HubSpot has a very important part of their culture. They call it leading with heart. And I actually have something that they sent me on like my first day or something. Our culture lives in our hearts. And it's an acronym. And unfortunately, I forget. Ex- maybe it says right here. Empathetic, adaptable, reliable, transparent. And the H is humble. So they very much have a very strong culture of allowing people to be authentic and allowing people to be themselves and turning it onto their managers and onto the people who work there. So I always felt that with my neurodiversity, I felt understood and recognized and allowed to do my thing while still being supported and given growth opportunity and helping me in the way that made sense to me. Wayfair was also pretty similar. Wayfair, I was a part of their ERG on disability. Um, there was a neurodiversity community there. I'd also very close, for both Wayfair and HubSpot, I was very close with their internal teams regarding accessibility more broadly. I was just talking about this with someone last night, but a big part of having like an online presence, like Wayfair is a furniture company, HubSpot is a CRM for marketing and doing your business, but people from all around the world with a wide variety of disabilities, whether it's sight, sound, sensory, there's a large 
gambit of disabilities out there that could impact someone's ability to browse the internet, basically. And when it comes to Wayfair and HubSpot, they need to be accessible to everybody, regardless of their disability, to use the platform. Otherwise, these companies can become involved in litigation and lawsuits. So I was very much involved in helping those companies become accessible and make the business and product case for becoming accessible. Before Wayfair, I was at Google. It's like a, a, a pocket universe, basically. I was at Google in their world headquarters, and that company is just is its own universe. And not a place with a lot of like very, very big tech companies. It, it was a very interesting experience as being neurodivergent for me. I learned a lot about myself, a lot about like how my neurodiversity affects my ability to work, because at that point in time, it hadn't really impacted how I do work, how I interact with people at a place like Google, which is very competitive and very difficult and very kind of uh, nose to the grind. I understood, wow, like this is how my autism affects me and my ability to work. And the downfall of that was that I didn't really know how to advocate for myself at Google until close to the end of my time there. And I'd wish that I'd been a little more familiar with it beforehand. And that's not that's not the fault Google. It's more that I just was not aware of what it meant to be neurodivergent and what it meant to be autistic at Google until about two months had gone by since I started. Hmm. How old were you when you got your autism diagnosis? Very young. I was two or three years old. I've had it as basically as long as I can remember. I have the documents in Google Drive or something, just in case it ever comes up. But no one's yeah. ever like, someone's ever like, show me the papers. I'm like, I can show you the papers <laughs> if you want me to, but no one's ever asked me about it. Yeah, well, in today's world, it's, I don't know, it's shifting very fast with people self-diagnosing and everything. And I know yep. there's a lot of controversy around that. So I think it's a relevant point to have the papers, quote. <laughs> I mean, no one's ever asked me for the paperwork. No, so like, of course not. People but ask I mean, if I have a diagnosis and I'm like, yes, but like, what, do you want me to like show you like a passport, like a stamp? Um, <laughs> right. On the subject of self-diagnosis, though, I know that for a lot of folks, it's extremely cost prohibitive. There's so much to yes. do with insurance, finding a doctor, yeah. being on a wait list. For a lot of people, getting an on-paper diagnosis is just close to impossible for a wide gamut of reasons. And so for those reasons, I don't have that many negative things to say about self-diagnosis. I think in a vacuum, if it was equitable and easy for everybody to get, I'd have a different perspective on that. But because it's just so hard. Yeah. I would say that more people are self-diagnosed than are uh, officially diagnosed for the sole reason that it's just really hard. And especially yeah. for a lot of like adults, young adults and kids whose parents maybe don't want to acknowledge their neurodiversity for some reason, they may have no choice but to self-diagnose because they might have the money to pay for a diagnosis process. Right. One of my friends got diagnosed a year back or so, and they were telling me that it costs about 1000 or $2,000 just for the diagnosis process, and insurance doesn't cover this stuff. Yeah, I think we're totally on the same page. I think in a perfect world where everybody had access to good and compassionate healthcare, right? Like self-diagnosis wouldn't even be necessary, but in today's healthcare environment, unfortunately, it probably is a necessity. At least in the United States, I can't speak to countries in Europe, to be honest with yeah, you. Yeah, true. But That's at least true. in the United States, it's just kind of, it's, it's very difficult from what yeah. I know about folks who have gotten diagnosis as an adult or can't get one as an adult because it's just too cumbersome. Yeah. I mean, a neuropsych exam costs thousands of dollars, yep. which is one of the primary ways it's diagnosed. So yep. it is definitely prohibitive. So yeah, it's a hard topic. 
I feel for both sides. I mean, I understand both sides being a healthcare provider. I think what's tough as a parent is wanting to be able to do something about it, but not being able to. I think that's where mm. it gets tough. Where like you, you notice, you know, your kid or kids have some neurodiversity or are autistic, and you want to be able to get a diagnosis, but the wait list for a doctor or for a clinician is seven months, mm-hmm. and you need you need a diagnosis to get an IEP, for instance, or a five hundred four, and it's just so. There's so many roadblocks and so much bureaucracy to make it really, really hard for people. If you don't have a diagnosis for schools, you have to make it really blatantly obvious for schools to do anything. It has to Absolutely. be like it has to be like a no-brainer, no questions asked. Your child definitely needs support if there's no diagnosis on paper. I was listening to another podcast about um, it was an autism podcast, but they were talking about schools and how we really just don't teach to people's strengths. We would save so much time downstream if we just started implementing ways for kids to learn that suited them early on. You know what I mean? I remember going through this with like Common Core. I graduated before Common Core really became implemented in the public school system. I grew up in the Northeast, so I can only speak to the Northeast and Common Core. But I remember sort of looking back in Common Core and thinking, is it really wise to like templatize this for everybody not taking into account different learning styles or at least providing some flexibility. What a disaster. Yeah. What a disaster. Yeah. What are they doing? Do you know, are they still teaching Common Core? I don't know. I have no idea. I'm, I'm pretty far removed from like the public school system at this point. For me, it's more like I have more in touch with colleges and also like a lot of folks who are neurodivergent and autistic going to college during the pandemic. That mm. was so hard for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. For the few friends that someone who's autistic made on campus, suddenly having to go home and not being able to talk to any of them and having to be very difficult is crushing. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. I mean, it's so hard to adapt to a new environment to start with. And then once you adapt to have it just be shut down with no warning is pretty overwhelming, I imagine. And for a lot of people who are autistic, they use college as an opportunity to like try something new or be experimental because they don't know anybody. That happened to me. Like I went to Cornell. And I got to Cornell on the first day. I'm like, I want to get in my comfort zone a little bit. And I said to myself, I am ready to be uncomfortable. It's going to suck. It's not going to be great. But I just said, I need, I need to know what my limits are. That way I can like work around them or grow with them over time. So my freshman year, I lived with a roommate. Very nice person. Very much more social than I was. Like opposite socially, but really nice person. I asked him, can you take me to a frat party? Like point blank is what I said or something to that effect. And he brings me to a frat party of a bunch of his friends, a big cover, and it's this sensory, loud, overwhelming nightmare. So much noise, so much smell, so many people. I'm like, ah! But two other people who went to the party with this whole group, with me, they sort of, they all the credit to them. They saw me and they were like, he's kind of having a rough go at it. So they said, hey, let's do this party and go somewhere else. And so we do that. And we go to a different party, which was like a lot less bright, a lot more spread out a lot less noisy and i'm like okay like i can do this this is much better i feel a lot less overwhelmed i can like hear people i can talk i can have a conversation and that was a big deal just knowing like this is too far past my limits but this is not was a really helpful exercise for me and i always kind of credit that to taking that first baby step because i've never done that baby step i would never have known what the limit was what the line in the sand Yeah, absolutely. And I think the lesson, too, that you're sort of portraying is that even though the first thing that you try doesn't work out because it sucks for you, 
you can't go home and hide in your bedroom after that. You got to try something different. That's not to say that every person is going to wake up and go to a frat party every day. That's not no. trivial for a lot of people. <laughs> for me, it's, it took a lot of courage, a lot of guts for me to like get up and say, like, I am going to do this. I am ready yeah. to be overwhelmed just for one night. At least I'll know and I, won't, I don't have to do it ever again. And what I said to myself as well is like, the worst thing that can happen is nothing. There's not a lot that can go wrong with this other than I just know not to do it in the future. Mm, um, mm-hmm. And yeah, the worst thing that could have happened was nothing. And nothing didn't happen. I learned from that experience. So I still came away yeah. on top, even if it was uncomfortable for like 40, 50 minutes. That's excellent. So you went to Cornell. What was that like? Did you enjoy it? I did. Cornell is a pretty massive experience as well as Google for some for different reasons, though. I think one thing that got me really going at Cornell was meeting people from all walks of life, from very different backgrounds, different perspectives, different opinions, different everything. I grew up in a pretty small town close to New York. So the kinds of people I experienced and met with were pretty singular, I would say. Like, everyone was white American, to be honest with you. But right. going to Cornell is an international school. So I meet people from all around the world. One of my best friends is from Bangladesh. One of my best friends is Greek. Like, I, I know people from every different walk of life, socioeconomic status, religion, class, gender identity. Like, this was all pretty new to me. And it was such a, I wouldn't say it was overwhelming. Just it was like a lot to choose from. I had to be very careful about, like, where I wanted to start. But one thing that I loved about Cornell was that it was really big about clubs, organizations. I was like, I wanted to find a club that I could meet people at, just socialize and have fun with. So my freshman year at Cornell, I became involved in an organization called Science Olympiad at Cornell. So Science Olympiad is a competition for high school and middle school students, basically like an academic decathlon, sort of, but like more hands-on and more test-driven. So students will build Rube Goldberg machines or they'll build like a self-powered flyer or they'll build other sorts of devices, like a, br- a bridge competition, or they'll do more uh, standard testing about biology or archaeology or scientific problem solving. And Cornell was putting on a competition for the first time that year. So I said, okay, like, I don't know anything about this, but I have nothing to lose. I want to meet people. I'll give it a try. And I gave it a try. And uh, nine years later, I'm still close with pretty much all of the people who I got in touch with. We're getting a house over the summer. And uh, one of them is a Grimsman at my wedding. And... A bunch, they're all invited to my wedding in October. So wow. I'm still very close of most of those people nine years later. So time wow. really flies. Time does fly. So when you were, you grew up with autism, obviously, as all autistic adults do, but you grew up knowing that you had autism. And I imagine your parents were actively involved in helping you navigate the way. What, what would you say your parents did right my parents were extremely fierce and present for my IEP specifically. I think towards my junior and senior year, they wanted to sort of like completely, I don't know what the right terminology is, so forgive me. They wanted to like deactivate my IEP or something. I'm not 100% sure on the right terminology, but because I was like, at the time I was pretty high functioning. Um, well, let me give you more of a sliding scale to know where I was and where I ended up. When I was in, just starting at elementary school to make it easy, elementary school, I had physical therapy, speech therapy, occupational therapy. I had a one-on-one, um, an aid, a shadow. I'm not sure what folks call them. They called them many different things. I had, a, I had a one-on-one, basically, who was with me at all my classes. I had a psychologist. I had like a very wide gamut of support services. I had the one-on-one from first grade until I was a freshman in high school, in ninth grade. And from that point, 
I was functioning more independently, but still kind of needing like a support structure in the sense of helping through difficult problems socially and mentally things I wasn't really exposed to or didn't really know how to solve. And I think, again, like towards my junior year when I was not doing a whole lot with the services that were offered to me, not that I was taking advantage of them, but like the services that I had were kind of being wound down, so to say. And I was like doing, I, I think, I think I remember, I remember very vividly in my senior year, I had to, I had to do speech therapy once a quarter. So four times a year, I remember walking in and doing it and they're like, why are you here? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> um, but it was probably because of that, but I wanted to sort of take my IEP away completely. And my parents both like clamped down very hard and said, absolutely not. And not until he graduates. And then my parents would not let them deactivate my IEP. So the thing they did the best was just advocating for my needs, especially when I wasn't the best communicator about it. I was a kid. Like there was a whole lot of things I didn't really, just didn't really know how to say. I wasn't mature enough to know what to say. And they were really good at understanding from the things that I did say, what was going on, what were my problems and translating that into, into the IEP, into talking with my teachers, talking with any sort of support services that I was working with and just advocating for me, whether I knew it or not. And I think it was both the advocacy that I knew about and the stuff that I didn't know about, which was the most impactful, I would say. That's amazing. You know that my listeners are primarily parents or loved ones, and they want to know how they can help. And I think as parents, a lot of times we doubt ourselves in knowing what's right for our kids, and we defer to the, quote, professionals. So I think what you're saying is a really important thing, that your parents, they didn't let anyone push them around. They knew what you needed, and they made sure you got it. So that's super impressive. A big thing that I wish that I'd had what I, that I didn't have growing up is more autistic role models or mentors, people who I could ask these things. So for instance, right now, like today, like at this moment in time, I do a bit of mentorship for autistic and neurodivergent adults. So for instance, I'm a member of the Big Brothers Big Sisters program in the Boston area. So I am the, quote, big brother of an autistic high school student who doesn't really have any stable male role model in his life, let alone an autistic one. So between him and I, we go into like the difficult conversations, the, the tough ones that you can only really ask somebody who's autistic and not get the, the runaround by a clinician. So for example, he asked me about like dating apps and stuff. And so a clinician could go into this whole very long song and dance about it and get very weird about it. Whereas I can sort of like cut through the noise and get, tell him, tell him what, tell him what I know he needs to know and what I'm afraid of or what my concerns are. Just like be safe, be careful make sure that like whatever you're doing, you know who these people are. He's a smart kid. So I'm not worried about most of these things, but it helps be repetitive. So I think the one thing that I would say would be really helpful for any autistic child or adult is finding an autistic mentor, advocate, or someone else who's been there, done that, just so the kid can talk to someone. Because that's something I wish that I had when I didn't have. I don't fault my parents for not having that. Don't get me wrong. It's more like in retrospect, it would have given me things to think about. Sure. But I think once I got to Cornell, I knew a lot more people my age and older who were autistic and I could sort of ask them questions and they could ask me questions. And it was more of a supportive atmosphere because mm. the folks that I did know who were autistic were at a very different point in their lives, either much more mature or not mature enough to be able to like really help me with what I needed at the time. Mm -hmm. So 
even though high school is a bit in the rearview mirror for me, I remember it enough to be able to help my little brother, for instance. That's really insightful, Shay. It's something that I think really strongly about. It's like, for especially for a kid who has a lot of things going on in their mind, then being able to talk to someone who's like, yeah, I've been there. It sucks. Here's what I would do. is a really big deal because for a lot of autistic kids, the only really support service that they have are the only people who have a glimpse of sympathy or understanding are the clinicians, are the psychs, are the therapists. Right. And they can be as sympathetic and empathetic as is possible. But in my opinion, nothing beats the like actual lived experience of being on a dating app with somebody who's autistic and going through the questions of like, do I tell this person I'm autistic or not? When do I tell them? What do I say? Like, that's a whole song and dance, which right. you can role play that for as long as you want to, but nothing beats the real thing where I can say to someone, yeah, I've done that. Here's what I did. Here's how I thought about it. It's different for everybody, obviously, but right. it's just an example. I also think that clinicians, a lot of times, you know, they may treat autistic people, but they don't always have a good understanding of the communication style as far as like concrete thinking or directness maybe, right? And so a lot of times things are misconstrued when people with autism go to a clinician for a problem. They are sometimes misinterpreted as something that they're not even asking. Yeah. A large part of that just comes down to speaking clearly. Something that I struggled with is like speaking clearly, not just from what I'm saying, but how fast I'm saying it. Ask my parents, I have like an actual younger brother, a genetic younger brother. Ask any of them about me speaking fast, and they will tell you about all the times where I would talk at a million miles an hour and they couldn't hear me because I was speaking so fast. And it took a long, long time for me to figure out how to speak slowly. And that wasn't necessarily for speech therapy. It was just like really just figuring out for myself, like, how do I make that mental shift? And it's hard. It's like really challenging. But I knew I wanted to improve in that regard and think more about how I communicated. So like, for instance, I could be speaking really fast right now, but what I do a lot of is like take breaths between speaking, swallow a little bit and just be more mindful about what I'm saying. That way I, I know what I'm saying and what I'm talking about, if that makes any sense. Like it's been so long since I think I've had the talking fast issues. Sometimes I slip and I speak a little bit fast from time to time. But it really kind of varies. It's, it's not as frequent as it used to be. Well, your brain is moving faster than most of us, so <laughs> it's expected, I'm sure. Thank you. One thing I think is really important, and I'll jump into it right now and say, for any parents, advocates, guardians, whoever you are who's listening to this right now, like if you don't hear it from your kids, from the people you care about, from whoever it is, like thank you for what you do. Because I think a lot of this is, a, is it, it can be thankless, and especially if you don't have that community, if you don't have the group of parents that are around you to support you when things are really tough, when, when the people that you care about, who care about you back, when you're butting heads or when something's going on and you feel like you're alone, like, just remember that, like, you're doing the best that you can, but also that, like, you are kind of a superhero in your own way for being in this position and being the best advocate you can be. And even if they never say the words like, thank you, I'll, I'll try to say thank you on their behalf because I think it's very important for people to hear that. Oh, that is so nice, Shay. I'm sure that's going to mean a lot to people. It's a big deal too. Like a lot of parents who are going through this stuff, a lot of them are like very alone. So the podcasts like these, helping people together. But beyond that, a lot of parents are kind of like touching their heads and they're like, 
how do I help my kid? I don't really have anyone else who knows what I'm going through as, as a parent. And I am not a parent. Maybe we'll be a parent one day. I'm not a parent right now. The most I am is a cat that, which is a very different set of circumstances. But I know what it's like to be autistic. And I, and I kind of see what my parents get up to when they're not paying attention to me and how much they get a toll on them in the past. But also like how proud they are of me right now when the things that I'm doing with Mantra, having gone to Cornell and doing other things, like there's a lot for them to be proud of as well. And I think it's important for the parents to also be proud of Absolutely. their kids and what they're up to. Again, even if it's for the small things, like today your kid said hi to someone to a stranger and they didn't get upset. Or it can be your kids or your friends gave a speech at school or led a presentation. It, it could be really small things. It could be really big things. Everything is different for every kid. Because like you've met one person with autism, you've met one person. Like my accomplishments are different from other people's accomplishments. It doesn't reduce the fact that they're accomplishments and very big milestones for whomever it is. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's an important thing because as parents, a lot of times as your kids grow and develop, you you compare them to neurotypical kids or your friend's kids. And it becomes hard to then see the accomplishments because they don't match the accomplishments that society says they should be meeting at that moment in time. And so I think that's like brilliant advice to parents is to pay attention to where your kid is at, whatever age they are, and when they do accomplish something new, that's something to be celebrated every time. The successes are all relative. So for instance, my company, Mentra, was founded by our CEO, Jilika Kumar. It was founded because her older brother is nonverbal autistic, so he does not communicate verbally the way that we do. And for a very long time, their family assumed that her older brother, his name is Vikram, they assumed that Vikram was not intelligent. That was just what, what they thought. And then comes along digital tablets for communicating on like a letter board using a tablet computer. And it turns out that Vikram can communicate in seven languages, which is six more that I can communicate in. He can write brilliant poetry, like actually brilliant poetry. He is a silent poet Vic, V-I-K, on Instagram. And he is extremely eloquent and well thought out when he does communicate through a letter board. So the assumption that Vikram was not intelligent was completely shattered. And so for his milestones are very different from my milestones, what he's able to do, what he's able to communicate. For instance, I think last year, sometime last year, he did a podcast. Doug Belcher does autism personal coach. So he did a podcast with Doug Belcher and that, that could be an accomplishment for Vic. Whereas for me, doing a podcast like this, it's maybe not an accomplishment. It's something to be celebrated, obviously. But the scope of the impact, the scale of it is very different. Absolutely. Yeah. That's so inspiring, though. I find that like amazing that, you know, how many people out there with autism who are nonverbal are just being completely overlooked and assumed to be low intelligence when there's a whole world going on inside of their minds. A big thing that, again, I could even do a better job of it is like, how do we as society more meaningfully support folks who either don't know how to or can't advocate for themselves? Like I consider myself do a pretty good job of advocating for myself as a speaker. But what happens if someone can't, literally can't speak for themselves? How do you support them? We live in a very speaking-driven society. Um, even this also includes folks who are deaf and can't speak. So how can we as society do a better job of supporting those folks? I think we still have a long way to go. 
but I think we're, we're trying to make progress. Every little bit counts, I suppose. Yeah. And sort of pivoting, because you made me think of other like ways that society could be doing better. Like every time I think about autism or every time I talk about it with like a lay person, they're always like, oh, did you watch Love on the Spectrum? Uh, and I have a very, I have mixed opinions on that show. I haven't seen it. I, I've seen the Australian version and the US version. I have mixed opinions in general of it. I think it's a very interesting take on autism and the ways in which it comes across in people. I think they did a good job of showing autism does not like have a cookie cutter look. When people think of autism, they think of children from Big Bang Theory, which is a very harmful stereotype. But I think that one thing that the show does very well is showing that autism is not just a, a geek. It's people who have a lot of love to give, who just show it in different ways, communicate in different ways, who struggle with a lot of things in a lot of different ways. Like, my struggles are different from someone else's struggles. So I think they did a good job of showing like autism does not have one singular look. It provided like very good perspectives on a lot of different people. Or I think I could do a better job of maybe is being a little more authentic about how I guess these folks go about dating interactions. A lot of it feel kind of staged, to be honest with you. Well, it is reality TV after all. <laughs> it is reality TV. And also only so much of it can be on the fly because... One thing that I know about myself is I do like structure. So obviously having a structure is important for a lot of autistic people. So like there has to be kind of a script to follow. I get that. I do think that parts of the show were a little bit rough in terms of so many interactions that I think the kids had. That's kids, but like these are, these are like adults. So many adults had like, I think in the, in the US one that just came out, one of the folks who was dating someone who's neurotypical got broken up with like on the set. And that was really tough. Yeah, that's horrible. And I, I feel like they didn't have to highlight that because it's just like it kind of embarrassing for this person. It's embarrassing for anyone. Um, Absolutely. So it's, it's kind of tough. Right. So you said that you're engaged, huh? I am engaged. That's a whole nother conversation. Where did you meet your spouse? So speaking of dating apps, we met on Bumble on a dating app. I had been on dating apps on and off for a year prior to that. I moved to Boston in March of 2019, and then I first got on Hinge as a dating app. And dating for me was a very interesting experience. It was the same sort of thing. It's like, I have nothing to lose here. I want to become more comfortable, more familiar with the process of dating. And worst case scenario, I never see this person ever again. As long as I'm like respectful and not a creep, not a weirdo, I think I'm going to be okay. And obviously, I had to make sure that like whatever I was doing was not being a creep or a weirdo, which fortunately, I never was. As far as, as as far as anybody's told me, <laughs> but my first like actual view relationship that I had was like, it didn't last very long, but that was the first time where like, I liked someone and they liked me back and like we invested in each other. And to me, it was like, wow, like this is what it means when someone like cares about you and when someone invests time and energy into you and wants to include you in things. And that was very new for me because at that point it had been more like friendships, casual family, like not with a stranger, not with someone who I didn't really know very well going into it. So that was a very new experience for me. And then that couple month period was surrounded by turbulence of dates, which didn't work out very well, dating someone for a couple of weeks and then not working out. Like that was a whole period of time. And then I met my now fiance, February 1st, 2020. So that's important because we met literally a month before everything shut down for the first quarantine. I remember meeting at the top of the Prudential Center in Boston, which they had been planning to shut the restaurant down for a while. It was going to shut down in March 2020, but regardless of the pandemic, they were just sh shutting it down for some reason or another. 
and Ariana said to me, her name is Ariana. She said to me, let's go up there because it's closing soon. I'm like, okay, let's, let's do it. We go up there and then we just, we keep seeing each other. She got me into hard cider. I'll never be able to work backwards from there. But, but until that point, I never really had like a social drink that I can drink. I, Cause I didn't, I don't do any carbonation. So like no beer, no soda, no seltzer. So I can't do any like the hard seltzers they have. I can't do any beer. I can't do any soda. But hard cider doesn't like make my taste buds go all crazy. And so she took me to Down East, which is in East Boston. And I'm like, wow, like, I really like how this tastes. And I never looked backward ever since. And I feel like I could like, it's a shameless plug for Down East. But well, hard cider is delicious. I agree with you. It is. Um, but what was really important about that was that, like, I took like a chance with her, obviously, but she treated me with a lot of respect and honesty and affection. And she took me to this place, which I now have a row of Down East cans in my pantry from the cans that I've had over the last year or so. And then the pandemic hit. And like, like between then and the pandemic hitting, we kept seeing dates. We would like go for a run together. We would just cook together. It was pretty casual, but we kept seeing each other. And then the weekend where everything really shut down, like really, really shut down. I think it was like March 18th or something because we had originally planned on going to kind of like a formal for ski patrol. I used to do ski patrol at Hunter Mountain. It's behind me. And the quote formal for the end of the season was that weekend. Um, and we show up to the mountain, the friend I had before, and I get an email saying that the event is canceled because of the pandemic, because it's a much older population, to be honest with you. A lot of people who are immunocompromised, so they just didn't want to take any chances. We ski with each other on Saturday. And Saturday evening, uh, the owner of the mountain, Vail Resorts, shuts down every resort across the world because of the pandemic. So we got one day of skiing with each other officially, she ended up coming back to Hunter to ski with me more because all she had to do was just study for her board exams for a doctor of physical therapy exam. I was working remotely for Wafer at the time. So we lived with each other basically for two weeks. And it doesn't really happen once you've met someone only two months in. But we did that very early, which was very unique for us, which really sort of, I would say, accelerated our relationship in a lot of ways. We had a lot of this early hard-hitting conversations, a lot of those like very early, like, how do you do your laundry? Are you a clean? Are you a neat freak? Are you messy? Those things really came very early for us within the first two months of meeting. And that was a very interesting experience for me. But she treats me with so much respect and kindness every day. That's wonderful. And I remember telling her that I was autistic because we were watching a documentary about uh, Alex Honnold. Alex Honnold is a free climber. And the documentary was about him doing a free hike of El Capitan out west. It's, it's ridiculous, but that's so crazy. <laughs> during the movie, he goes in for some sort of a diagnostic test and they say to him, like, you might be autistic and it's probably a factor as to why you kind of do these things kind of stubbornly or don't have that concept of fear because you just kind of plug ahead. And I remember just talking about it and then I remember like telling her I was autistic. And how was that received? She was really kind about it. She had a couple of family members who either were or might have been autistic. We're not really sure. And then she also worked with people who were autistic for her physical therapy stuff as well. But she was very open to it. And just like, I think I've also gotten to the point myself where I can communicate more clearly to her. Like, this is what my autism means for her, for her sake. So for me, it means like loud bars, loud events. I kind of struggle with. I can do a decent job in those environments, but I need like a heads up. I can't just like show up to a bar. I kind of have to like know that it's coming, if that makes any sense. 
Mm-hmm. And she's been amazing mm-hmm. with me. I'm so lucky. She's amazing. Oh, I'm so happy for you. Thank you. Well, I'm so, thank you so much, Shay, for coming on today. I know that we initially were going to talk more about the uh, project, but I just had to take an opportunity to pick your brain because the life that you've lived, given the struggles that you were handed. Of course. Thank you for having me again. And I love talking about sort of the life of being autistic. I feel like I could talk forever about mantra, but I think what's more important is talking about like the life of an autistic person, especially from the intimate moments like dating and going through school and so many other things, which I think don't always get talked about. Hearing about a startup, everybody talks about that all the time, but hearing about someone's life as autistic is a very unique magnifying glass into it. Yeah. It's an important thing that we understand it better, I think, as a society. So if uh, people are interested in Mentra, where can they find information about that? We are mentra.com, M-E-N-T-R-A.com. If you're a job seeker, or if you know somebody who is a job seeker, you can go onto that website and click sign up. It's a five or 10 minute application, upload your resume, it walks you through the whole process, it's really easy. If you're an employer of someone who wants to hire neurodivergent talent, including people with autism, similar process, click sign up. At the top, you'll see, I am a job seeker. You can choose that you are an employer, that you are hiring. Lastly, if you are a university, if you are a job coach, if you are somebody who works as an advocate on behalf of a large group of people who are neurodivergent, same process. Go at the top, click your university or a service provider. Make sure you hit that drop down to hit service provider. Same deal, and you'll be off to the races from there. And you can find me pretty much anywhere. I'm the only person with my name out there. So if you search for Shea Belsky, S H E A, B as in boy, E L S K Y, I'm like 99.9% certain I'm the only one with my name out there. And if you can find somebody else, let me know. And are you doing speaking gigs? You said you were a speaker earlier. Uh, I certainly am. This is Autumn Acceptance Month. So depending on when this podcast goes up, if it's still Autumn Acceptance Month, shoot me a note. You can find me again on LinkedIn. You can email me, hello at shaybelsky.com. Again, if you find me, you can find my website. Um, Even if it's not Autumn Acceptance Month, I'm always more than happy to talk about disability, neurodiversity, and autism at basically any point. And I'm more than happy to talk to companies, schools, parents, just shoot me a note because I love talking about this stuff. As we've, we've been talking for an hour, so I love talking about this stuff. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. It was wonderful to meet you. And best wishes in all your future endeavors, Shay. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me and have a great rest of your day. 